I invite you to open your Bible with me this morning to John's Gospel, John chapter 20. John chapter 20, and we're going to be reading verses 24 through the end of the chapter. This is a week after Easter Sunday, and we have here the, the story of a, a doubting man, a Thomas, and a risen Jesus who calls him to faith. I'm going to read, as I said, verses 24 through the end of the chapter. Let's give our attention to God's word this morning. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not yet with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Our fathers, we now come, we come to be taught by your word and through the Spirit. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that your word is, is powerful, that it divides between the bone and the marrow discerning the hearts of men, and we pray, Lord Jesus, that we would experience the power of you speaking to us through your word, and that we might, Lord, um, be brought to a deeper faith, or maybe to faith for the first time, in the reality of our risen Christ. We pray in his name, amen. Well, this morning I'm, I'm doing something I don't think I've ever done before, and that is preach another Easter sermon the Sunday after Easter. And uh, you might wonder why I'm doing that, and um, I'm doing it f- for several reasons. Um, I just have been convicted as uh, I've been s- studying the Easter event and the impact of, uh, on that again. It's just struck me how utterly transformative that event was for the life of the early church, and, and, and the contrast between that and the contemporary church. Uh, as we read the New Testament, the resurrection of Jesus Christ functioned uh, in the life of the early church as its reason for existence. It, it was uh, their hope, it was their peace, it was their joy, it was their confidence. It's what gave them boldness in the face of persecution. It, um, it defined their faith and, and their faith defined their life. Uh, they were a resurrected church, a, a church that believed fundamentally, foundationally, in this thing, that Jesus, the man of Nazareth, had really truly died and yet had been raised in a glorified body, that 
uh, what is mortal had put on immortality and what is perishable had put on the imperishable and that in Jesus Christ all things are being made new. Uh, D.A. Carson uh, in his commentary writes, For John, as for all the early Christians, the resurrection of Jesus was the immutable fact on which their faith was based. Well, I'm not sure the same could be said for the church today, particularly the American church today. Easter is a holiday that we celebrate, but how much does it really function in the way that we do life day by day? Is it, do we even think of it during the week? Are our prayers molded by it? Do you have a sense that when you're praying that, that you are speaking to a risen, living Jesus who knows you and loves you and, and is eager to respond to your prayer? Is this the, the thing that strengthens us when we feel weak or when we're afraid? Now, does the resurrection of Jesus Christ feel like the answer, the, the, the perfect answer to the things that we face day by day? Because I think it's supposed to. I think the, the, the resurrection of Christ is supposed to feel like not just the best news, but the foundational news. The thing that we stand on and the thing that we hold to. The, the fact that there is a living, never to die again, right? Death defeating, I am with you always, I am coming again. Jesus, who loves us, knows our needs, and cares for us and is leading us. That is supposed to be the foundation for a life of, of joy and peace and, and comfort in the, in the face of the trials and heartaches of this world. It's, it's supposed to make all the difference. And so I'd like to take just another um, morning, Sunday morning here, to marinate again in the wonder of the resurrection and to see uh, what it did in the life of this man, Thomas. Uh, Thomas is in some ways a fitting figure for us because uh, Thomas is living in the age of the resurrection but getting no real benefit from it. Uh, Jesus was fully, gloriously alive, and uh, that was an established fact, but Thomas did not experience any of the benefits of that resurrection. That, that fact had no functioning power in Thomas's life. That whole first week, he received no help from it whatsoever, no comfort, no, um, no peace in tribulation, no confidence in God, no joy, none of it. He was a miserable man for that first week. And you see, Thomas's firsthand evidence that Easter by itself does not have power to transform your life. Or let me say it this way. It has the power. It's just not going to be functionally transforming your life all by itself. It's, it's perfectly possible, as we see in, in the case of Thomas, it's perfectly possible to live in the age of resurrection. And with all the incredible, profound ramifications of that fact um, present, evident, and available to you, and yet you be blind and ignorant of it all. You get no benefit. It's possible to live in this age of resurrection and get no benefit from it. Well, that was Thomas. And too often, in varying degrees, it explains our life. It explains the weakness and the fear and the anxiety and the timidity that we so often experience. You see, friends, it is not only essential that Jesus be risen, that is essential, but it is also essential that we come to a functioning confidence 
in that fact so that it actually changes the way that we live. And so the title of my sermon this morning is A Functioning Faith in the Living Lord. A Functioning Faith in the Living Lord. We meet Thomas, um, a man in a world of hurt. Uh, he had not been with the disciples, we're told, when Jesus appeared to the disciples Sunday evening of Easter Sunday. Uh, they relayed to him that they had seen the Lord, but Thomas refused adamantly to believe it. His, his unbelief is fixed, it's resolute. Unless I see, I will never believe. That's a very interesting response. Uh, Thomas knew these men. These weren't strangers that were coming to him. This was Peter and James and John and Andrew and Philip and Nathaniel, Matthew. These are men that he had walked with for three years. Uh, these, these are men that he knows to be men of integrity, uh, reliable witnesses. They, they don't lie. They're not pretending. And yet they come and they, they give their testimony and he refuses to accept it. It is a Jewish custom uh, to, to receive facts that are established by two or three witnesses. Well, Thomas has at least ten of them. Uh, you would also have the witness of the, of the women who had seen the Lord. He has multiple witnesses. But, but this is his response. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. That, that is like really strong. That is an aggressive statement. Unless I put my hand into the wound, forget about it. I'm not believing. Well, what in the world is behind that obstinate refusal to accept their testimony. Well, John doesn't tell us specifically, so I want to tread carefully, but there are clues about Thomas that we read in John's gospel. Uh, we don't, you don't hear much about Thomas, but there are two times in the gospel, uh, John's gospel, where Thomas speaks up and we get a sense of, of what he's like. Uh, for instance, in John chapter 11, uh, Jesus has found out that Lazarus is ill, and, and uh, it's in Bethany, near Jerusalem. And, and Jesus says, well, let, let's go. First he stays, of course, a few days, and, and then they're going to go. Well, the disciples think that's a horrible idea. A rabbi, they say, uh, a, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you. Remember that? And yet you are going back? They're trying to help Jesus out. Uh, Lord, Bethany is not a good place to go right now. The leaders are, are right there. Remember, they tried to stone you. This is a, this is a very bad idea. They're, they're, they're going to try to kill you again. We know these guys. And, and so they're trying to persuade him. But Jesus is determined. Jesus replied, I need to go and awaken him. And then Thomas, also known as Didymus, the twin, said to the rest of the disciples, let us go also go that we may die with him. Now, that, you could read that as sort of a Peter statement, right? Let us, full of bravado, we're brave men, uh, and we will die with him. He maybe meant it that way, 
my sense is that this is um, Thomas being the realist. And Thomas, in his exasperation that Jesus doesn't, doesn't seem to understand, um, this is more like an Eeyore moment, right? Sort of a, um, let us go also that we may die with him. I don't know. I think Thomas sees himself as a realist. And the one who sees the dangers involved and, and maybe a little exasperated, Jesus doesn't seem to understand it. And so, Jesus, you're going to be the death of all of us. That exasperation, I think, rears its head again in chapter 14. Uh, Jesus is speaking to the disciples at the Last Supper. And, and Jesus has these wonderful words of comfort to them. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Wonderful words of encouragement. And then Jesus says, and you know the way to where I'm going. To which Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? And again, you can sense his exasperation. Uh, Thomas seems to be a plain man. He likes plain truth. He's not crazy about riddles, and, and Jesus seems to delight in them. And so, and so when Jesus says this, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and you know the way where I'm going, Thomas just can't help it. Lord, we have no idea where you're going. How in the world can you say we know the way? How, how are we supposed to know the way when we have no clue where it is? That's, that's what he is saying. He's just exasperated by the fog. And he's not going to sit there and nod politely when Jesus says things that make no sense to him. He's not going to go, hmm, oh yeah. He has no idea what Jesus is talking about. And so he's exasperated. And then Jesus was crucified. He didn't just die. He wasn't just murdered by his enemies. He was crucified crucified, the death of the damned. You see, Thomas had believed that Jesus was actually the Messiah, the, the, the one that God himself would send to deliver God's people. Thomas, Thomas had believed that Jesus was the Son of God, or at least had not protested when, when Peter had pronounced that to be the case. But you see, the cross was irrefutable proof that none of that was true. The cross is proof that God has abandoned Jesus, that Jesus is not just crucified by men, Jesus is condemned by God. That's what the cross means. Every Jewish person knows this. And you see, it's the, it's the shocking, horrifying end of everything that Thomas had believed to be true about Jesus. His death on a cross just meant that they had been wrong devastating, utterly, irrefutably wrong. It's, it's time to face the facts, right? This isn't hard to figure out. They had believed in Jesus. Jesus was dead. They had been wrong. And so Thomas's faith had died when Jesus died. It, it had been devastated, destroyed. And, and the pain of that disillusionment 
was too much to bear. So D.A. Carson again says, this is the doubt of someone who has suffered massive religious disappointment, and he doesn't want to be snookered again. And so when the other disciples, you see, come and say, Thomas, we've seen the Lord. He just can't hear it. He can't, he can't bear it. The excruciating pain of the dis- disillusionment was, was too much. He's not going there again. They think they saw the Lord. Maybe they did. Maybe they didn't. It doesn't really matter. He's not going to believe until he has hard evidence. Unless I see in his hands the mark of his nails and put my fingers into the marks of the nails and my hand into the wound in his side, I will never believe. That's his stand. It's a very strong statement and a direct challenge not only to the testimony of the disciples, it's a direct challenge in a sense to Christ himself. If Jesus wants Thomas to believe, well, he's going to have to provide evidence. He's going to need to make a personal appearance. And he's going to have to show Thomas the wounds in his hands and the wound in his side. And he's going to have to let Thomas touch them. No more riddles, no more mystery. If Jesus is alive, let him prove it. Jesus himself in his crucified flesh, that's the deal. Or Thomas is not going to believe. Now, in some ways, uh, we could applaud Thomas in some of this, right? There, there have been those in the history of our own denomination, history of the church, who've said that a physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ isn't necessary to the Christian faith. That, that's one theory, if you want to believe that Jesus physically rose from the dead, but there are other ways of explaining what the uh, Gospels t- talk about in, in, when they speak of the resurrection. Um, some people believe that, um, you know, that resurrection is just the, uh, trying to communicate the idea of the Spirit of Christ being let loose in the world um, and then there are other theories maybe, but it doesn't necessarily mean that Jesus physically came out of the tomb. Well, Thomas will have nothing of that nonsense. Any resurrection that is not a physical resurrection is a failure and a fraud. And it proves Jesus to be both. And I think we just want to say, yeah, that's, that's true. If he actually just died like other men die, well then he's not who he said he was because he said he was the way, the truth, and the life. And you can't be the way, the truth, and the life when you're dead in a tomb. He said he was the son of God. And so so Thomas is exactly right to insist upon the real thing. We can also uh, laud him for insisting on evidence, right? Faith is not, as many suggest, just sort of a leap into the dark. Not the Christian faith. The Christian faith is founded on evidence, on testimony, historically accurate accounts. And, and, and so here again, at least Thomas, though he refuses the testimony, he insists on the evidence. He's not interested in leaps of faith, leaps into the unknown. He's interested in truth. Is it true or isn't it? If Jesus is truly alive, let him prove it. And so he makes his demand. I will never believe unless the crucified Jesus stands in front of me and shows me the hands. Well, imagine his shock when Jesus does. You see, it's precisely Thomas's strong stance and his proud, hurtful, his, his wounded words 
his, his refusal to believe. It's exactly his stance that makes, that, that makes the scene so dramatic. Um, so the, the, the disciples are together again. John says eight days in Jewish accounting. That would be the next Sunday, next Sunday evening. I'm not sure why he's there. He doesn't maybe know where else to go. He doesn't share their faith, but he is not ready to leave their company. It's possible that they were there trying again to convince him and that he was there again putting his foot down, taking his stance. And then suddenly, though the door did not open, suddenly Jesus, in a glorified body, in a crucified, glorified body, is standing there, and he turns directly to Thomas. Man, if there was a moment in history where you'd love to be there, uh, that's a good moment, to see the look on Thomas's face. Right? Unless, I will never believe. There he is. Jesus, the Son of God, in his glorified person. The disciples certainly were overjoyed. Thomas had to be overwhelmed. Jesus turns directly to Thomas. Jesus said to Thomas, verse 27, put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Exactly what Thomas had demanded. Do not disbelieve but believe. I mean, I can't imagine the, the the conflicting, overwhelming emotions of shock, joy, shame that Thomas must have felt. Here was Jesus in his crucified flesh, just as Thomas had demanded. It was evident that Jesus had heard every bitter, demanding word that Thomas had said. And now Jesus is here calling him on it. Not rebuking him in a sense, how, you know, how dare you say that? He's, he's, he's just calling him on it. Put your fingers right here. Put your, put your hand right here. In my, right where the spear went. Don't disbelieve, but believe. It's an incredible moment. And Thomas collapses in worship. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Now, again, that is a very strong response. We're used to it, but, but to, the, to the readers of John's gospel, you don't call people my Lord and my God. God is in heaven, right? Here is where the Lord your God is one. And Thomas is saying to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, these incredible words, my Lord and my God. And it... it, it it's an amazing response. It wouldn't make sense to us for Thomas to be shocked, even apologetic. Jesus, I'm so sorry for doubting you. I'll never doubt again. But he doesn't do that. What he does is proclaims Jesus, the risen Lord, as his Lord and his God. It's one of the strongest testimonies to the deity of Jesus Christ in the whole Gospel of John. So in a single moment, Thomas goes from this tenacious unbelief to adoring worship and proclamation of Christ. And I just want to ask, how, do you, how did that happen? Well, obviously, the evidence was a part of it. The evidence 
that Jesus was really truly alive. Not alive like Lazarus had been alive. Not alive in, back in his mortal body, uh, alive only to die again. But that Jesus was alive in, a, in his glorified body. That, that Jesus had truly broken the bonds of death. And that in that had proven he really, truly, irrefutably was the very Son of God. And Thomas was convinced of that in a way maybe he'd never been convinced before. And, and that means he didn't, he didn't have to have it all figured out. He, he still didn't know where Jesus was going and, and maybe wasn't sure how to get there. But one thing he knew, that this man, Jesus from Nazareth, was the Christ of God. That this man was the very Son of God. And that this man had, by the power of God, conquered sin and death and hell. And he didn't have it all figured out, but this he was convinced of. He knew whom he had believed. And it was impossible not to respond with worship. I think there's another motive at play here as well. It's not just the evidence of deity, but I think the evidence of love. If you notice in the story... Thomas never did reach out his hands and touch the nail print. Right? He had, he had been pretty clear. Unless I touch, unless I see, unless I put my hand, I will never believe. And, and yet he doesn't do any of those things, and he, and he clearly believes. Why? Well, I think, I think the stunning kindness of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, all, all of Thomas's angry, proud, stubborn unbelief, it, it all falls by the wayside. When, when Jesus appears and doesn't, doesn't rebuke him, doesn't condemn him, Thomas, wh where's your head? Thomas, how could you after three years? You saw all the miracles I did. You saw me raise people from the dead. How could you, how could you have doubted he, Jesus rebuked other disciples, not, not, not the twelve, but remember the, the two on the road to Emmaus. When they're, he's walking along, they have no idea who he is. And, and they're mourning the death of the one that they thought was going to redeem Israel. And Jesus' response to them was, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And then he opened the scriptures to them. And he was right to do that. And he was gentle in doing that. But he doesn't do that with Thomas. He doesn't take offense. Jesus humbles himself in love to meet, Thomas, to meet Thomas exactly where he is. Thomas, you need the evidence. Here's the evidence. You need, you need to see the hands. Here they are. You have to touch the wounds. Help yourself. I just think the love of that, the, the, the humble, condescending love of Jesus Christ to meet this man there in, in, in that place where, where, where Thomas said, I'll never believe unless I can, and Jesus says, then, then do. And, and, I, and I'm convinced that's what broke his heart. That, that's what broke through the disillusionment. It, it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. And the kindness of Jesus here, how, how do you resist it? And so, and so Thomas collapses now to receive and proclaim this Jesus as Lord and God. This Jesus who knew him and knew all about his unbelief and yet loved him. And friends, that resurrected Jesus comes to you today. He knows all about your, your unbelief. Your secret cynicism. 
your, your, your fear and your, your anger. Maybe, you're, you're, maybe you, you carry a sense in your life that God has wronged you somehow. People have that. Where a parent died young or got divorced. And, and it just doesn't make sense. And they carry that cynicism. If God, why didn't God answer my prayers? I remember talking to a man whose daughter was killed in a car accident. And he simply could not accept. He couldn't pray anymore. He had no idea how to make sense of that. What is the bitterness or cynicism or fear or anger that just keeps you from receiving Jesus Christ in fullness, with joy, with confidence. You see, Jesus comes to us in a text like this because he wants us to see him, to understand who he, he in truth is and, and who he is for you. Jesus, in a sense, is thinking of us in this text when, when he says to Thomas, Do you, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Blessed as Jesus looks out over the, the course of human history and he sees all these elect ones coming, not because they've seen with their eyes, but because they believe the testimony. Jesus says, blessed are you, accepted are you, beloved are you. Jesus delights in you. The Father receives you because you believe though you have not seen. Blessed are those who will accept the testimony of the apostles, the, the historically accurate testimony that they give. Blessed are you. You see, God wants us to believe in, in, the, in the deepest way possible the truth about Jesus and what that means for our life. John writes, as he wraps up this text, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples. There were eyewitnesses, but they're not written down. But these are, these are written so that you might believe in truth, in depth, that Jesus is the Christ, the very Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in His name. That's why John wrote the book. That's why the Bible exists. So that unbelieving people like you and me could move from unbelief to faith in the deepest sense, in an ever-deepening sense. Right? Every Christian prays the prayer of the man who says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help my unbelief. Friends, these, were, these words are written precisely to that end. God has given us everything we need for a deep, convinced, confidence, faith, and faith in the resurrected Jesus Christ. And, and, my, and my question to you then is, well, what would that look like? What would that kind of faith look like? A, a functioning faith in a resurrected Jesus, a living Jesus. Remember how Jesus um, comes to the Apostle John in the book of Revelation? Do you remember how Jesus introduces himself? Behold, I am the what? The living one. I was dead, and yet I'm alive. Friends, Jesus wants you and me to know him as the resurrected Christ, the living Jesus, and to have a functioning faith in that Jesus, the one who died and 
yet is now alive and alive forever. So what would that look like? What would a functioning faith in that Jesus look like? Well, it would look like, as we see in Thomas, a cognitive conviction concerning his divine nature and a receiving of his amazing love that leads to worship. That's where it would begin, a cognitive sense that God has invaded this world in the person of Jesus Christ, and that means that this world will never be the same, and it means that our life can take a dramatically different trajectory than the one it was on. That we can move from death into everlasting life. That we can be known and loved. That we can matter because we belong to God and that our life has meaning as children of God and citizens of the kingdom. So a cognitive sense of the divine nature of Jesus and, and, and then a sense of his, his amazing love that he knows us. He knows all about us, and yet he loved us and gave his life for us. A functioning faith will lay hold of those things. A functioning faith will, will look like living by praying, where you're, just, where you're talking to Jesus. You're thanking him for every beauty and every good gift that you don't deserve, and you, and you thank him because you know it comes from those crucified hands. And, and, and it would look like talking to him about things that you need, just, just talking to him about Lord, I'm going to have a long day today, and I need, I need strength today. And I, maybe there's a hard conversation, or Jesus, you know I'm wrestling with this relationship, and I do not know what to do about it. And, and, and my emotions are in a bad place, and I don't know how to fix them. But Jesus, you do, and you've given your Holy Spirit to lead and guide me. Would you do that for me today? That, that's, a, that's a functioning faith in a living Jesus a living Christ. It will look like embracing discipleship, that, that we now follow him. He's boss. He's our Lord. And we embrace humility. We don't have all the answers. We, we don't have any of the answers, but he does. And it will look like embracing love as, as we love others with the love that he's loved us. It will look like a desire to spread his cause and to proclaim his name, uh, to speak with increasing boldness. Because this Jesus that we believe in, he's alive. And he reigns at the right hand of God and he knows our name and he knows our need and he's got a mission in this world and he's coming again. And we want at the end of our life for that Jesus to say, well done. Well done. By his grace and by his power. So friend, I would just ask you this morning, to examine your life and just ask, where, where has unbelief taken hold in my life? Where, where is there bitterness? Look for, look for those places of fear and, the, and, and anxiety and, 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 and bitterness. And, and just bring those things intentionally to Jesus, the living Jesus. Confess the truth of the unbelief and lay hold of the reality of who he is as revealed in his resurrection. Pursue a functioning faith in the truth of our Lord Jesus Christ and let it transform your life. Amen. Oh Lord Jesus, I thank you that you love us though you know us and I thank you Jesus that you, your desire is that we walk with you in a convinced and functioning faith and Lord we confess our faith is fickle but, oh, Lord Jesus, thank you that it is your desire to strengthen it and deepen it 
And it's your desire, living Lord, to bring fruit to it, the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, to cast out doubt and fear, to make us bold, to make us humble. And so, Jesus, we come to you as our living Savior. And we ask that you would do these things in our life, that we would, we would ex- have the joy of experiencing the power of Christ for a transformed life, for the glory of God, for the furthering of his cause. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and respond to the word with a song of worship. Thine be the glory, risen, conquering son. Let's come to our living Christ and sing to him. Oh.